HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I, I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset, a horse, I'm thinking thoroughbred horse, aqueduct racetrack, <laughs> Belmont racetrack, those type of things, you know, and, and, and slowly but surely I'm starting to understand a lot more. I do remember early on, like, you know, the first month or two of dating, how we would daydream about starting a farm together. And it's kind of like, hold on, let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that, you know? <laughs> so what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life, um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in Black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our, for our people, and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcast. So hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special Saturday episode recording September 30th, 2020. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio. We're here on Heritage Radio Network. You can support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So uh, last month when I was at the Union Square Green Market in New York City, um, I ran into uh, cider maker Seth Jones of East Hollow Cider. And he started asking me funny questions about, you know, who, who he could sell cider to. Uh, you know, it's getting fall cider season for a lot of retailers. And I went through my short list of, of my go-to 
you know, good beer seal uh, bottle shops for beer. And I started realizing that, that there's not really too many uh, beer shops and even not too many wine stores that have a, a, a really uh, comprehensive selection of, of hard cider. And of course, my, my the, the light went off and I said, whoa, Seth, there is someone. There's uh, Paige Fiore and her brother Gennaro at Boutique Wines and Spirits up in uh, Fishkill, New York. So from that, we I started, started trying to connect a few people. And uh, we put the show together. So let, first, we're going to go around, and we're just going to give a brief introduction of who they are, and and a few lines about about you know what their role in cider is. So l- let's start with Paige, since she's kind of our our linchpin here. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. I'm a linchpin. <laughs> <laughs> Causing trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's me. So I'm Paige. Uh, I own. Boutique Wine Spirits and Ciders in Fishkill with my brother Gennaro. And uh, we're a big retailer. We have about 200 different ciders in bottle and can, and we have 13 on tap for growler fills. So we're a pretty big retailer uh, in New York State. And it's great. I know you guys just won a big uh, National Cider Award uh, as a, one of the top retailers in the East Coast. Yeah, so we uh, we were pretty surprised that... Um, that the American Cider Association, we were even on their radar, but we apparently were, and that was pretty awesome. So we end up winning uh, for 2020, the best cider retailer on the East Coast from American Cider Association, which, you know, we're in some pretty, pretty awesome company across the country. So that was a nice honor. Congratulations. And uh, so next guest, Dave. Hi, uh, I'm Dave uh, Urbanus. I'm the owner of Sugarberg here in uh, Brooklyn, New York, Williamsburg. Uh, to be exact. Uh, We're a uh, bar restaurant. Uh, We specialize in craft beer for the most part, but we usually have a uh, healthy section of packaged cider, uh, somewhere in the range of 10 to 12 different ciders on the regular. Great, man. And then our other guest, Seth, East Hollow Cider. Hello. Um, Yes, I'm the cider maker and co-owner of East Hollow Cider. Um, and we pretty much sell cider every way you can sell it. We have distribution in some states. We um, do in New York State mainly self-distribution, and then we also do uh, the Green Market at Union Square a couple times a week, which is direct hand-to-hand retail sales. So we really, and I think it's kind of what you have to do as a cider maker, cover all the bases of selling cider. That's great. And, and Brandon Buzza, who's a, a cider man and expert, uh, will be joining us a little later in the show. So let's start with Seth. So Seth, uh, I was with, with you one day at Union Square, um, yeah. and we started talking about about where you could sell cider to. I thought that would be a good theme. So just tell us, how did you decide to start selling cider at Union Square Green Market? And I mean, the amount of work that you have to put in to do that and why you chose that route uh, rather than just selling, you know, uh, through a distributor or trying to sell directly through retail stores in the beginning. Sure. Um, So we did try and sell through a distributor and we had a distribution through a wine distributor for a little over a year, um, which was a mixed kind of experience. Um, Really great people. Uh, the thing is with cider is it falls in between a lot of categories. So this was a wine company. They would rep us, but they were going to wine stores only, really. And, you know, the sweet spot for cider is because it's kind of this crossover beverage is you want to be able to get in groceries, cheese shops, um, also wine stores, but also beer shops. So my decision was based on really feeling like we needed to get cider into people's hands and to represent ourselves. Um, and Union Square is, you know, everybody knows Union Square. Uh, I'm also a New York City guy as well, so I'm down here a lot. And um, it's been a really good experience. We've connected to a lot of stores, restaurants around the area. Um, and also it's just uh, provided a kind of steady revenue stream, which honestly we needed. So it's kind of, it's word of mouth, you're, you're meeting people, and then if they have a restaurant or, or a bar, they, they might order from cider from you. Yes, exactly. We also are, are making the rounds and selling out, you know, we have a, a, a circle of people who are regular customers, both upstate and in the city. And then where are you upstate? Because you're, you're, you're kind of a unique player, and I know you tend to favor uh, 
what I call real cider makers like Andy Brennan at Aaron Burr. Uh, where's where's your operation and, and what's your philosophy of cider making? So we kind of, I was a home cider maker for about 15 years before I decided to get a license. Um, we have a small farm right on the edge of the Berkshire Mountains. We're in New York State, but we're literally a mile from both Vermont and Massachusetts. We're right at that tri-state corner uh, up in the mountains. And when we bought this place, we discovered that it had a small orchard on it and also that the surrounding area was just filled with wild trees, abandoned orchards. Uh, and at that time, and even still, no one was using them to make cider. So we sort of became a, a home cider makers, then community cider makers, and then it just sort of became an obsession. And we started planting hundreds of our own trees, and um, and here we are today. Uh, it's uh, it's been a real adventure, and it continues to be. Um, we are very fortunate in that we're able to have very low overhead, but at the same time, we're very limited in the amount of growth that we can. Uh, take on, which is a good thing. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about uh, the cider business is that you're here in the New York area and it seems that fall is your busiest selling season, but yeah. isn't this the same time as your harvest season as well? <laughs> yes, it is. I really need uh, another one of me. I need a clone. Uh, I keep, you know, driving down today. I saw all these trees along the side of the road and I was like, Oh, 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 but um, yeah, that's something we really have to figure out. Uh, fortunately for us, this is a very light harvest year. So we are used, and last year was very heavy. We had made a more cider last year than we've ever made. Um, so we're kind of trying to balance that out and put in as much time into marketing and selling as we can. Yeah, that's great. Great introduction. So Paige, uh, give us a little backstory on you. I mean, did someone in your family go to the Culinary Institute of America? Was someone in your family selling Italian wines? How did you get to, to this place? So I was pulling a bag uh, for, for Italian wines for a number of years and in the upstate, in the Hudson Valley area. And I, was, I am married to a Culinary Institute of America graduate. And my brother, uh, Gennaro, was bartending. And basically, I always loved cider but couldn't find much when I grew up in New York City so when I moved up here I thought well I'm in the middle of cider country I should be able to find some pretty good ciders well I was frustrated I couldn't find what I was looking for most people didn't know much about cider and um, I was very frustrated with the whole uh, idea of it and I was in and out of a lot of different wine stores and I was going in and out of beer shops and I just couldn't find anybody that had any information so I decided you know I can't be the only one out here that's looking for cider. It, it, I'm not that much of a trendsetter. I just, I'm not that far ahead of the curve. So I was like, let me do this. So I approached my brother and my husband and I said, hey, I, I, I want to do a shop. I want to do a wine and spirit shops, but I want it to be centered around cider. Meaning I, I don't want cider to be in that back corner that's not well lit, like, you know, the old bad room at blockbuster kind of scenario <laughs> I wanted it to be center court in my store so we came up with the idea of actually putting taps in the back of the store and to make it truly inviting and to really kind of make it the showcase of the store we actually hired a local artist who sculpted a tree a floor-to-ceiling tree and it has branches that comes out onto my floor and there's a tap in the tree so we actually have a, what I call tree tap and I usually put something kind of fun on tree tap you know we kind of rotated out, but we have Orchard Hill right now on our tree tap. But uh, so there's uh, 12 taps and then there's the tree tap. So 13 taps of cider. So when you come in, we have this full on apple tree. And right now it's decked out with colored leaves and full apples, you know, and you can sit under the apple tree and taste some cider and fill a growler. And it just cut on. When you first opened up, how many ciders did you have for sale? Yeah. So. So we, we opened up in 2017, so we're about three and a half years old. And when we opened, we had a pretty decent selection. We had 35 in bottle and can and nine on tap. And now we have about 200 in bottle and can. And that's just, it just keeps growing because people keep bringing me delicious cider. So I keep getting it because they're all good. <laughs> and uh, we have 13 on tap. So we've definitely expanded quite a bit. 
Well, the, the, the first reason for this show is I wanted you and Seth to talk. So, so what advice do you have for, you know, Seth's a, a small New York State cider maker. What, what steps does, it, does someone have to take to sell to you? To me? And just guide us, yeah, guide us through the process of, of how someone sells to you, you know, the other steps involved. Yeah, so because we have such a big store and a big selection and people are starting to find out about us quite a bit, we start to um, kind of attract customers all up and down the East Coast. And because I have just such a huge population of people that are coming two, three hours sometime for cider, we have a basically a varied um, selection of customers who like things from the sweetest of sweet you know, and they're, they're grabbing things like um, Awestruck or 1911, that style, to the driest of dry. So, yeah, things like Aaron Burr and Metal House and, you know, Hudson Valley Farmhouse and, you know, more dry ciders and everything in between. So we don't, we, we basically want there to be steps within our store so people can kind of explore the entire category of cider. That's a really important thing for us that, that we showcase the different types of things within the category of cider. So when you approach us, basically uh, we want to see what types of cider and what expression that a particular cider maker has, because a lot, I mean, there's a lot of apples that grow here in New York, but we, we see a lot of the same apples. But what we love is to see the different expressions of those apples that the cider makers can come up with. And that's kind of important to us. So we kind of look at how it is expressed and how that fits into our current selection and where cider is growing and what types of subcategories we want to expand. Does that make sense? Yeah, so now I'll go to Seth. So Seth, um, you're selling to me and Paige right now. <laughs> You know, you, yeah. I know you know Aaron Burr. Uh, what are some benchmarks that you compare your cider to? And just being on the phone, how, how would you convince Paige or I to, to carry your cider? What I would say is that um, our ciders, as closely as we can make them, is an expression of this place where these apple trees grow. It's an incredibly uh, mineral-rich soil full of shale and clay and it that very austere and very hard to grow apples in. So for me, what I'm trying to do is coax that flavor out of the soil through the trees into my cider. I would give uh, um, an ounce, you know, I would give a pound of apple forward flavor for an ounce of minerality. And that is really, that's what I'm after. Now we also do other things, you know, we've started to, cause it's intriguing, started to, um, Bring in fruit from an, a, a nearby orchard, really classic cider fruit like ash meets kernel and golden russets. And But the backbone of what we do is uh, working with these old forgotten trees. Um, but what we do that's probably a little different than other people is we try and make them as clean as possible. They'll have funk in them, but not as much as a lot of other people's. We we ferment them really slowly, cold temperatures for a long period of time. And um, I think that's partially also what sets us apart. We're not in any hurry to get it out into the market, which is a real blessing. Yeah, no, you and you've always impressed me with your, your independent spirit, because I know even when there were cider weeks like last year, uh, you, you would choose to, to host your own event like at As Is, that great bar in Midtown. Uh, right. Tell us about that event, because that, that's also part of how you sell, but also how you're creating this own little independent community. Yes, absolutely, which is really important. And it's an extension of another community of apple growers um, that takes place uh, up in Massachusetts called Stump Sprouts. It's run by Michael Phillips and a couple other people. But we do an event called Cider by Hand during Cider Week that... Um, we just do ourselves and it is uh, it's to basically um, kind of magnify and put out there the small scale cider makers who are doing it all themselves from the growing to the making to the bottling, um, which is why we call it cider by hand. It's people like Redbird and um, Black Duck Cidery, Aaron Burr is there, also West Wind um, and so Fable Farm from up in Vermont. 
Um, and so that's what we really are trying to celebrate. And uh, to me, that's what is sort of the heart and soul of the cider, the new cider movement. No, that's great. And that's a great introduction to, to you. I want to try to get Dave if it sounds okay, uh, because Dave is a restaurant, beer bar, cafe that is selling cider, but it's it's not the main thing. And it's but it's that, I think that's a big growth market. You know, even when I had my pub, Jimmy's number 43, over the years, we went from no cider on tap to one or two regularly. Uh, Dave, if you can jump in, just tell us, give us a sense of your selection and any philosophy you have right now about, about selling cider. I know that you've, you're just opening, reopening tomorrow for uh, Inside Dining in New York City. Uh, yeah, we're reopening uh, tomorrow, and uh, we're a little light on a product right now, just for the simple fact that, uh, you know, the whole shutdown and everything, we've been running through a little bit of product and throwing out product that wasn't any good anymore. Um, but right now, we're going to open up tomorrow, I believe, with about 10 ciders uh, total, and then uh, we'll probably be adding to that a little more, but I usually swap them out, and that's um, that's sort of in... A menu with you know about 50 bottles of beer and 20 different taps that rotate on the regular basis as well uh, we do put cider on draft once in a while but not not as much just because this market for some reason my draft cider just does not move as well as my package cider uh, Dave just give us tell us a few of the ciders that, that you do have uh, and then we'll move on to the next question. Uh, a few of the ciders I do have, um, well, I have a classic old school, the DuPont uh, Brut. Uh, it's a French cider, as we all know. I also have a couple graphs. I usually have at least two cans of graphs uh, just because I, they're somewhat local, even though they're you know up in Newburgh. Um, and they're kind of funky and sour, and that kind of goes along with beer. And uh, I think a lot of our beer crowd actually likes that a lot. And then also we carry uh, a Down East and uh, a Wolfer's Dry Rosé as well. Thank you, David. Thank you. And I'm sure you have things like Graf Cider. I mean, definitely the, the crossover, talking about what, what Seth was saying, cr- crossover uh, into grocery stores and, and, and beer bars. Um, Seth, if you want to just jump in on that, wh- what do you think, what styles are, are, are appealing to like beer bars and, and grocery stores that aren't? that aren't typically sold in wine stores. Yeah. Um, I love craft beer markets and bars. Honestly, I think it is the growth market and it's, uh, also because I love craft beer. Um, I think it's a much more receptive audience. People are much more willing to jump in and try stuff, uh, very often than wine, um, aficionados and stores. Um, and take a chance on something new. They don't mind something being a little funky and a little weird. Uh, the other thing, though, that I'm startling with all the time is format. You know, we started out making only 750 milliliter bottles. And that's a really tough sell in a lot of both restaurants and beer shops. Um, so we're trying now adding 375s, but for someone, uh, a company that's as small as we are, it's really hard to A, do cans. Cans are kind of off the chart. Um, and even the smaller bottles, it's a real struggle as to how to format the cider and how to sell it. I'd love to hear what Paige has to say about that too. Yeah, so um, we actually sell everything from the 375 cans to half bottles to 750s and we brought in some of Aaron Burr's mags actually um, recently which I can't keep on my shelf so it's interesting that you um, say that you're a you know more gun shy about the 750 format but you know in a wine store a consumer is actually used to a 750 bottle like that's kind of what they expect and when you think about cider, a 750 bottle really is a serving for two. So when you explain to a consumer or you can show a consumer how you can use a cider, you can pick a cider over a wine for dinner and how versatile it is with food and that it's just got a little lower alcohol so you can actually enjoy more even week, you know, weeknights on a school night kind of thing. Uh, that changes the picture for, you know, that consumer. And they tend to go with the bigger formats when they're doing dinner and they're pairing with food. When you talk about the type of cider that's kind of more of a, like, 
a more modern style cider, a sweeter style cider, that sort of skews to somebody who just wants to hang out and drink cider, sort of socially, and that works better in the cans. So we tend to do really well with, so we do really well with like 1911 and 9-pin in can, right? I have Orchard Hill in can, and I also have their 750s. Their 750s can move better than their cans do because the consumer that understands their flavor profile in our store tends to go with the 750 because they're going to have it with dinner. Like they're using it in place of wine. And so it really depends on the cider maker and who you are targeting as your consumer and how they're going to consume that cider. And Seth, at this point, are, are you making as much cider as you possibly c can keep up with? Um, yes. Yeah, I am. Uh, you know, because of the way that we, what we use to source, we're, you know, we're not like a big uh, orchard that has, you know, where we are spraying and doing uh, certain treatments. We kind are, from year to year, it varies a lot how much fruit we have. That's the main thing that determines how much cider we're making. But yeah, we're making just about what we're selling. It's pretty straight on. Yeah. Hey, Paige, um, I was curious, you know, when you go through your whole cider selection, um, is there one cider that makes you smile some days? Because I'm sure there's a lot of joy for you. I think about your store, which I still haven't been to. I think of that cider tree, and I'm like, there must be a lot of joy in that store. Because it's not just, I'm not just going to the supermarket here. This it must be a special place. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, yeah, I mean, so we really pick what we think is a good example uh, in the subcategories of cider. We really, we really spend a lot of time talking about what we should bring in, what people are looking for, what's a great example of a, of a style of cider. And, and there, it's a lot of fun. I mean, and meeting cider makers is, is pretty cool. I mean, um, Seth mentioned some great cider makers. We carry Redbird. We, of course, carry Aaron Burr. I mean, there's some really incredible cider makers just here in New York, and I'm not even talking about going up into New England and out west. I mean, we just have so much talent just here in New York State, and it's incredible. And I'm so happy to have such a breadth of ciders here that represents New York State and into New England. And it's pretty incredible. It's, it's a, I mean... Yes, it's my shop, but I really enjoy working here. I mean, I get up in the morning and I'm excited to go to work. Wow, that and then it comes through. That's amazing. Hey, for just for a minute, I want to give a shout out. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute. Shout out to Sugarberg in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's it's you go to the L train at at Graham Avenue uh, or the other one, <laughs> Dave. And, and sorry, Dave, we're losing your uh, your sound, but go check it out, Sugarberg in Brooklyn, because Dave Dave is a real industry veteran, managed the ginger man for a long time. And uh, I'll tell you, as a go-to place, I love that he's carrying uh, more ciders th than most other places. So big shout-out to Sugarberg. And uh, we're going to take a short break, and Brandon Buzz is going to join us when we come back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special cider episode uh, recording on September 30th, 2020. Uh, just coming back from the break, uh, big shout out to heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member and support at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about selling cider. It's fall, it's COVID, and uh, we started with Seth Jones of East Hollow Cider and uh, Paige Fiore. Uh, from Boutique Wines, and uh, Dave Urbanos from Sugarberg in Brooklyn. And now we have another guest joining us, uh, Brandon. Brandon, please introduce yourself, because um, you, you're quite an interesting figure in the cider world. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, but um, but I definitely enjoy it. Um, I'm a longtime home winemaker. Uh, I randomly met Tony Katuri in the mid-90s and um, started to visit him, and he kind of started me on my my path. And um, you know, sort of on the, you know, hands-off approach, um, letting, letting nature, the terroir kind of, kind of give you what, you know, kind of give you the best of what she has to offer. And, um, randomly I was on a vacation up in Washington state, uh, one winter and, and happened to be at a bar that, you know, I was looking for something different. And, uh, the guy said, listen, we've got this local cider, which normally wasn't something that I was very interested in said, you know, I think, I think you're going to find this interesting. Um, you know, looking for something different and turned out to be Finn River. Finn River was just down the road. And so I went and visited with Keith and Christy and Andrew and I was sold instantly. You know, I mean, the, I, I enjoyed the beverage, but just their, their whole ecosystem and what they were doing just sold me in. And, and it's been, a, been an adventure ever since. And so I'm not, it's important probably to acknowledge that I'm not in the business of selling cider. Um you know, I don't work for a cidery. I don't have anything that I'm getting paid for. It's just, I'm just really a cider advocate and I've traveled. I've, you know, I've been to um, Peter Mitchell's class in the UK and, um, you know, spend a lot of time with orchardists and the cider community. And it's just a very, um, I just, I just, I love the community and I love the space. And um, I just continue to get more involved, whether that's Glint Cap or whether that's Good Food Awards and, and just really the people and the, and the beverage has just, just, just been a, it's been a treat for me. Great. So when I you first came on my radar, it was probably last year at CiderCon because uh, Gabe, the ciderologist, uh, was was posting and tagged you. And then I saw some photos that that Paige and her brother Janara at Boutique Wines had posted also of CiderCon. And uh, it, the, the photos of you and, and Gabe, ciderologist, seem to be almost like... Uh, like rock stars of, of the cider world. But it's, it's, it's funny because neither one of you is, are, are necessarily cider makers. Like to me, it's like Aaron Burr and, uh, you know, maybe the kids at Tilted Shed, I'd, I'd be I'd be checking out. So you, you've kind of positioned yourself as a cider judge, right? So between Glint Cap and the Good Food Awards, uh, you're sitting in on, on judging cider. So I, I want to steer this to where does that fit into selling cider? Because I know, like, scoring systems have helped boost a lot of, of products, like Craft Beer had Beer Advocate, for example, and Robert Parker revolutionized wine in the 90s. Some say for the worse. Sometimes I, I think also, but it did help, you know, help with selling products. So the, the judging that you're doing between Glint Cap and the good food awards tell us how those fit into the industry and um you know good that can come of it well um admittedly that may be something for more for a page or somebody who's on the on the, the selling side i mean i certainly talk to a lot of producers um and get feedback on you know kind of what the awards so a, a liberty cider um you know a haken somebody who's done really well, well in the awards over the years um but I don't, you know, I, I think it's an important piece. I definitely don't want to, you know, single out, again, kind of my advocacy for cider in general. I don't want to single out the people who don't compete. And I understand there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and I understand that, you know, kind of complaints with it. Um, but I do think it's a nice, I mean, you know, my whole thing is, is education. So, right, I'm, I'm selling cider all the time, although I'm not selling cider because I'm around people. If you come into my ecosystem, you're going to drink some weird cider out of my library or if I'm at Redfield in Oakland with um, Mike and Liv, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up out of my chair and I'm selling because I enjoy that conversation. Um, and so I do think it is important um, as a way to distinguish 
um, in a space that really still is in, in, you know, in New York, uh, you know, you, you know, your market way better than I do, um, at least on the West coast, while there are lots of educated cider drinkers, it's still, we still have a big hill to climb. And so it's, it's constant. I'm, I'm meeting people all the time. I'm talking about cider every day with random people and, you know, the education, it's a, it's an opportunity and it's a challenge, right. But the, you know, kind of the learning curve for all the different apples and single varietals and, you know, spending $50 on, um, an obscure Perry. I mean, I, you know, I'm okay with that cause I understand it. Right. But it's, it's educating people. So the awards are, I think important and just kind of giving people one more thing to get comfortable with spending, you know, money on a, on a, on a high quality bottle of cider. I mean, I'm sure as every guest would, you know, um, agree, there's not really nothing different about the process between wine and cider. Right. So people shouldn't look at cider and say, well, you know, I shouldn't be spending more than $20. I mean, the inputs, the labor, all those things are expensive. And so, you know, if you find a nice dollar, $40, $30 bottle of cider, I mean, that's worth every penny. And um, I just think it's a matter of, of making sure that the consumers understand that. So I, you know, I think the awards are an important, they're not the be all end all be all, but they're an important element of just helping the consumer along. And what is a, again, a challenge and an opportunity to kind of educate them about so many elements of cider that are new to people. Yeah. When I, when I was just reading about you for the show today, um, for years, I've, I've talked to some cider makers like Steve at Farnham Hill, for example, and we used to talk about how do you have a label to differentiate, differentiate you know, good ciders or real ciders from, you know, the average cider or mass producers. So it sounds like the Good Food Awards, it seemed like that some of the judges that, that were there, um, it seems like that, that could be a really great platform um, for some of the, the the better ciders to to, to really take off. Um, what, tell tell us about who who some of those judges are and what your role is in that. We're not going to only talk about that, but I did find that was pretty interesting. Uh, just learning that about you. Yeah, they. I mean, the Good Food Awards is is it's wonderful for a lot of reasons. Sarah and her team have done a phenomenal job of kind of growing it over the years from a couple categories to I think we're seventeen categories this year. Um, I believe the inspiration, I'll get a little bit of the history wrong, but I think the inspiration came in her travels to the UK where they had a, you know, sort of a, a label system kind of indicating this is, you know, this, this food products organic, it's grown sustainably, just some of the elements to allow you to kind of take that next step and saying, all right, I can be assured that this product's been made with a little more, you know, focus and, and, you know, concern over, you know, the organic growing practices or, or whatever the, you know, kind of the labor that was involved. And, um, and so as a result, we, um, I think we attract a great, a great list of producers every year. Um, you know, this year we, despite the pandemic, I think, you know, I, I, and a lot of other folks were, you know, concerned we were going to see a, um, kind of a dip in the, you know, obviously submissions. And we were actually up slightly over last year, which was amazing. And I think speaks to the you know, kind of state of the market that people are home and drinking more, you know, bottled and canned ciders and, and, um, you know, we're interested in, in, in participating this year. And, Unfortunately, we had a, sort of an abbreviated um, judging process. Normally, we do it in person, uh, which is wonderful. This year, you know, we had to do it all. I mean, hats off to Good Food. They did a phenomenal job of packaging everything up. And then the judges, as opposed to going somewhere to get together like we would at a Glint Cap or any of the big competitions, um, picked up their boxes and went home. And we all jumped on Zoom and tasted it. And it was, it was great. Um, and so, um, you know, this year we had, again, some returning judges, uh, Darlene Hayes, Jake Mann, um, Joseph Baker, folks that have been with us, um, Liv Mackey, folks that have been with us a number of years, um, and no cider well. And, and, and um, you know, despite an, a, a kind of a smaller group, uh, we had a really knowledgeable uh, list of folks that, um, you know, could kind of help kind of go through and just judge things and, you know, tasting for, for flaws or things like that. But uh, generally, I think we had a really a good crop of ciders this year that were submitted well that that's a great intro brandon brandon i noticed that you also had you and Paige seem to have some overlaps uh i noticed that she was had posted some things uh that she was selling some favorites recently one of them was blue bee cider out of virginia and i saw that you've posted about that yeah. um and you also mentioned finn river and i was looking at pages a boutique wine posted some of their new ciders for fall in addition to like Farnham Hill and Aaron Burr, I, I did see Finn River. So um, just tell us about those those two. And and you know you're based in California. I, I'm 
I feel like I mostly drink New York and, and Northeastern ciders. So, um, you know, how, how are you getting these ciders from all over the country? Uh, well, I, I travel a bit. Um, so certainly that's, that's part of it. And in fact, I'd had a, a, a massive plan to, to drive all the way out to see Mr. John Bunker this year and a number of producers up in upstate New York. And obviously COVID had, had other plans, but, um, you know, through travel, through a lot of great friends, um, cider, you know, fanatics who, you know, will swap bottles, go somewhere, bring extra bottles back. Um, you know, now that we have a Redfield in particular, I spent a lot of time with Mike and Liv. They have an amazing collection. But um, sometimes if I'm desperate to get something, I'll just, you know, really anxious to try this particular Harris and I'll, I'll just call and, you know, do uh, take advantage of some of the mail order services for that. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of things. I mean, the judging is also nice because they're extra bottles you can taste. Um, and so things may, may come from that. But um, yeah, I would say it's kind of it's anything and everything um, to try to, you know, kind of just cover cover my bases and try a lot of ciders from from all around the world. I'm gonna go to Seth right now. Seth, gosh, we jumped from New York to uh, California and Good Food Awards. Um, are there any any benefit from that to, to cider makers like you? Um, are there any New York State Awards that, that you try to be part of? Or do you really feel like you just have to uh, stay independent and and you know work within your circle? Yeah, I don't really take part in competitions and never have really. Not that I'm against them or have any, you know, it's not a political decision at all. It's just we kind of make the cider that we make with the fruit we have. And I think that judging um, isn't, I can't make a different cider than I make, nor do I really want to. Um, so it, it probably would benefit me, <laughs> but honestly, I um it's just not uh, in my wheelhouse. Um, we try and, you know, make connections direct with people, um, talk directly to people about it. Um, and that's really how we do it. And we're able to do it because we're such a small cidery as well. Yeah, and we, we know from craft beer that whether it's the BJCP, the kind of standard judging style guidelines or the Great American Beer Fest, um, there's definitely styles and you really have to hit it on the nose with those style guidelines. As for example, if you, if you made a contemporary session ale that, that like a carton had the boat beer eight years ago, and I, I wanted to call it all the time, a hoppy Kolsch and Augie Carton would say no, because we don't want it to get pigeonholed as, as, as not being true to style. So uh, he would basically made his own name up called boat beer, which influenced a lot of people. Um, I, I can see that happening, but we also do need, we do need standards too. You know, it's like, again, if I'm going to, let's say, I, I think that, I think I'm talking more about the, how typical beer and wine shops can grow their cider selection. And I do think in those cases, having standards like a good food award uh, can be helpful. You know, if I, if I had a, a wine shop um, and I want to grow my cider selection, perhaps I would say, well, I want to get 10, uh, 10 hard ciders that, that have a good food award uh, recommending them. Um, I don't know, Brandon, if that's something you see people trying to do or that if there's, if there's a need for that. Uh, well, I mean, I, I know that I haven't seen the science, uh, the, you know, the, the, the research I've talked to producers. Um, I know good food has the numbers indicating that, you know, that's definitely a, a shows a, a pickup in sales. Um, I, I just kind of come back to the original point. I just think there's, especially now with even more cider coming out um, and there being a lot of, you know, despite being close to it all the time, it seems obvious to me, but obviously not obviously, but if you're into a wine shop and you're looking at a, um, you know, hundred percent Harrison or hundred percent Wixen, there are a lot of people that are not going to know what that is. And so, um, you know, if somebody's recommending it to you and then there's an extra step, right. That it won an award or something like that. I think that helps. I mean, clearly with our, with the judges just this last year, I mean, I think it's generally true, but you know, people that have been around cider a lot. Um, I, I think a lot of the ciders that got the high scores, I mean, they're really fabulous ciders, but well put together, well balanced and, and just every little, little extra bit helps. Um, I think, again, I can't speak, you know, I don't, I don't own a shop, but I, I do think that that, you know, on the margin helps along with the education that, you know, you might get if you're going to see Paige in her shop or something along those lines. Yeah, and I'll speak for Paige. I like her approach to having a wide range of, of styles and, and dryness levels because 
I can I can still remember one cider week at my old pub where I used to load up on ciders. And there was one year where I had all the really great New York State, uh, you know, orchard-based ciders, but they were all seemed like all of them that year were were carbonated and you know sparkling style. And I had a really good customer come in asking me, you know, where the sour ciders were. And he didn't mean uh, like a you know a modern fermented fake sour. He meant like you know. Astorian and and other Spanish ciders, so I think that's what that's what is interesting. What I like about cider versus wine, even though wine has so many types of grapes, I still feel like that most most of wine is an international. I'm just diverging, but you know, wine to me has an international shipper's style. It's 13 percent, especially for red wine, whether it's some Slovenia or South Africa or somewhere else. You, you're you're usually looking for a, a standard style. And what I love about cider is that I do feel that the regional differences really come out. And when you're talking about range of alcohol to, to, to a really broad range of dryness, I mean, to me, that that is most exciting. And now I want to go to Seth. So, Seth, tell us how, how in your cider making, you know, how you're – so each batch is different, right? Tell us your, your – how that how that works because you must have a wide range of flavors we do have a wide range of flavors we do i mean we go from really sort of acidic uh um very dry ciders to softer kind of tannin based ciders um basically depending on the fruit we're able to harvest um we do almost exclusively wild fermentations with none or minimal sulfite additions so that also can take you in, you know, nuanced different directions because the yeast strains vary a lot from year to year. Um, but that's for us, that's what we want to do. That's what makes it interesting. Um, we're super careful about not having it become overly funky or too weird or, but a little weird is a good thing. Um, and it's also, you know, I was thinking, listening to Paige, I mean, I can just see her in her shop. And one of the things that, makes the huge difference is that person talking about it to the customer. That's why doing the markets is so beneficial to us. And that's why, because cider is still such a kind of in-between thing, I think you cannot replace that. You know what I mean? And then let's talk about a specific one of your ciders. So the Ashmead Kernel, you were very yeah. proud of it. You've been showing it around the market this week. Tell us the journey of that, that cider from where'd you get the apples uh, and to the fact that were you surprised at how good it was? Sure. Um, I have used some Ashmead's kernel uh, in the past. We're growing some ourselves, um, but not enough yet to really get a full crop. There's a local grower um, who I discovered who has uh, just a kind of amazingly well-grown orchard kind of off the beaten path, and I was able to access last year pretty nice harvest of Ashmead's kernel. So I was, and I had planned to use it in a blend with some other fruit, because that's what I've always done with it. And most of what we do is blending. We don't really do single varietals that much um, for a number of reasons, but um, it was so good out of the tank that we decided to just bottle it as a single varietal, um, lightly bottle conditioned, and it is just a beautiful cider. It's, you know, Ashmead's kernel. I can't get enough of it. It's, it's got this great fruit forward, yet tannin back, perfect acids. Um, I'm super happy with it. And it's also, a, it, I like it also because it's completely different than what we usually do, which is blends of wild apples and apples from old orchards and our own fruit. And so to take, to make something that's completely the opposite was really exciting. Well, and we're definitely going to keep doing it. That's great. And we're going to go back to Brandon. So, Brandon, um, talking about different types of ciders, you just made a post about uh, vintage cider. Um, you want to tell us what, what, what cider that you had that was it was four or five years old, and do people think that that is not normal? Well, I mean, I, I in my experience – for the you know the years that I've been around cider, uh, more often than not, people will tell you right that it's not something you can age. Um, and but there's lots of things you hear in cider that are just not true, um, you know. And it it really comes down to, and I guess it's really true for a lot of things, especially in food. It's you know may, maybe it's just because you haven't found the right producer to manipulate whatever that fruit is in a way that allows it to taste a certain way 
Um, and uh, I think the aging of the cider is, is one of those things. So um, I posted on a, um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the hair, a lot of the lost apples. I was fascinated by the Harrison story, uh, you know, obviously sort of a legendary apple that was found, or, you know, rediscovered in, I think, 84. And then, you know, quickly sort of replanted. And uh, there's a number of, of orchards now that have Harrison trees. And um, I don't remember all the history uh, as to, you know, kind of why it was a legendary cider apple. But I, I know there is history with that, which is why they were anxious to find it. And um, so I, when I, I think Blue Bee was one of the first ones that was doing a single varietal Harrison. And so that was the reason that I had probably a case of it half you know six bottles of it back in the day and um yeah so this was i believe the bottle was dated january 2016 so 2015 2016 presumably and um you know i don't know that it, that if i stored it at warm that it would have lasted it but i kept it you know like you'd keep wine and it was fantastic i mean it tasted just as good as the day um the day that i got it and i'm sure it would go another five years just a great balance just great acidity and um, I think that's that's the excitement and, and probably the best part of that is that touched off a huge conversation just on my Instagram thread, kind of chatting about that. Um, Alpenfire Bear chimed in and he had a lot of things to say about that. And that's really what I enjoy, just a very organic sort of conversation and um, something I learn and other people learn about about aging ciders. But, you know, Bear in my thread was talking about how, you know, he found that some things don't, you know, don't age as well. And obviously it has a lot to do with what your blend of apples and, you know, what's the pH and, you know, how cleans your bottling practice, how clean are your bottling practices, all that sort of stuff. But it's, it's exciting, right? It's just all these variables and how do you thread the needle to, to get it to last and, and have that excitement in the bottle, you know, years later. Hey, Brandon, if you're interested, I have the more recent version of the Harrison by Blue Jeep. Yeah, well, I, I haven't had, uh, probably had the 2018s alas, so that it would be nice to get the most recent version. We'll have to talk, talk about that. Well, maybe we can swap yeah. one of the older ones for one of the newer ones and I can check it out. Sounds like we've got a deal. <laughs> Think so. That's great. Thanks so much to Paige, Seth, Dave, and Brandon for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big thanks to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, and head engineer, Matt Patterson. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.